I began last week by saying um, Mike is a bit like when you go to a jeweler's and um, you, you're asking to look at a particular diamond, and they, they stretch out a dark black cloth in front of you. And, and the purpose of that dark black cloth is in order to, to see the diamond in all of its beauty. Uh, against that da- dark background, that the diamond picks up the light more, it shines all the more brightly. So last week was very dark. It, it was pretty bleak, it was pretty depressing, and uh, I, I promised you, I promised you this week we're going to hear some, some actual good news, we're going to hear the gospel. And um, so hang in there, there will be good news tonight, but I, I warn you ahead of time, there's a little bit more bad news before we hear the good news, <laughs> so stay with me, please. You'll um, be helped, I'm sure, by that blue handout, um, which you'll have inside your service sheet. Um, but I need God's help, and we need God's help to listen, so let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you that we are indeed saved by grace. It seems to be the theme of our service this evening. We're saved by grace. And thank you for that security. And we ask that now, standing in your grace, we might enjoy hearing you speak, even if it's uncomfortable, that we might know you more, that we might know ourselves more, and that we might depend on Christ all the more. In his name, amen. A confession to begin with. I know nothing about gardening. Every time Hannah and I get given a plant, sometimes people give you plants, don't they? And We always manage to murder the plant in record time, simply through neglect. We, we kill it off as quickly as we, we're given it, really. Whenever um, gardener's question time comes onto Radio 4, we always switch over. It's boring. Gardening's not for us. I remember when I was at school, I was actually surprised to learn that humans don't photosynthesize. That came as a shock to me. I always figured that's the reason why my mum used to send me outside to play. That's, that's where you get your, you know, your life from. Now, I don't know much about gardening, but I do know this much. I know that a plant's roots affect their fruits. That is the sort of stuff which um, a plant sucks up through the soil. I don't know anything about gardening, so I'm way out of my field here. But the sort of stuff that a, a plant sucks up, the nutrients, it has an effect on the sort of quality of fruit that it bears. So this is going to be a shock for you tonight. Humans don't photosynthesize. That's point one. We don't photosynthesize. But there is something that we do share in common with plants. And that is that our roots affect our fruits. That is the messages that we listen to. The worldview that we immerse ourselves in, marinate in. It's inevitably going to have an impact on how we live. Our roots affect our fruits. Now, this is a bit of a problem for us, because actually, we're all a mixed bag of influences, aren't we? Both good and bad. Our beliefs and our worldviews, they're not, they're not always that visible, are they? Like roots, they're, they're hidden underground. So how can I know if I've got a deficient view of God or not? How can I know if I've understood the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly or not? The, the roots, they're underground. What's the evidence? How do I know? Well, we're going to see from this passage that one surefire way is to look at the fruit that we're producing. As Jesus said, you will know believers by their fruit. Our fruits reveal the quality of our roots. And that's how Micah 2 is going to help us tonight. You remember, if you are here last week, in last week's passage, we saw how God's people had turned away from the living God. At the northern kingdom of Israel, they'd, um, uh, they'd largely embraced the gods of other nations, other idols. And now the southern kingdom of Judah are beginning to do the same. 
Idolatry, if you like, was their root problem. And in this week's passage, we see the corresponding fruit problem. So our first point you'll see on your sheets. God plans disaster for defrauders. Disaster for defrauders. Follow with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. If uh, if your Bibles are open in front of you, please look down with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Micah writes, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. The economy of Micah's day was very much agrarian in nature. That means people's livelihoods were pretty much completely tied to their own little patch of land, which they then farmed and then got the fruit off of. Now, imagine, bear with me for a moment. Imagine we are God's people during the time of Joshua. This is centuries before Micah was written. And it's during that time of Joshua that we went around the promised land. And, and each of us um, was given our own little portion of land by lot. So Ross and his family were given sort of this patch of land. And then Dan and his family were given that patch of land. And, Michelle, and, and um, Hannah and her family were given this patch of land and so on. Everyone had their own specific lot of land, their own specific portion of land. That land was theirs in perpetuity. Even if Ben Mungavin, Ross's son, in future years thought, I'm going to sell off this land, he, he couldn't. Even if someone else wanted to buy that land, he couldn't. It, it couldn't be traded away. That land was the Mungavins, or the barman Mungavins, whatever Jewish name you want to give them. It would have been theirs in perpetuity. And the reason for that is because God wanted his people to have security in the land. With that, by way of background, you see how in these first two verses, how a critical threat has emerged to that good design. A certain group of greedy land barons are going around taking people's land off them, just like King Ahab did with Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember that story? Well, these guys are not content with the portion of land that their family had been given. So they're finding ways to seize, take other people's inheritance in verse 1 we see what they're up to that we see them plotting and planning in their beds they're dreaming of what they might do if only they had more if only they had the mungavin land or the things they could do and then come morning what do they do well they they head out to the city gates that's when in the morning that's when the judges met to adjudicate and these greedy land barons they make their case and through cunning and through deception they get what they want Economists would call this a zero-sum game. That is, as they get more and more and more, someone else gets less and less and less. Their gain means someone's loss. And by defrauding these people out of their blessing, out of their inheritance, at at best their victims would become day laborers. At worst, they'll be forced into slavery or prostitution. Now, just these first two verses, I think it's quite easy to see how these verses relate. We, we see this sort of thing going on in our world, don't we? We all know of politicians, of, of uh, industrial leaders, of uh, property developers who are really in it for themselves. They're, they're getting richer and richer and richer as the people they're supposed to be serving are getting poorer and poorer and poorer. It's the, 
It's the basis of pretty much every political drama on TV, isn't it? This is what we see in our world. We see that out there. But I'd like to suggest that the applications here run a little closer to home. It could be, I don't know, it could be there are one or two people here who are aware that their job is harming the poor of our land instead of helping them. This might be a word in season for you. But even if our jobs don't harm or hinder the weakest in society, we do still share the same root problem as these land barons, which is, verse 2, we have covetous hearts. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he, he was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he understood this truth very well. I've got a quote here if you're up to listening to it. Um, he, he writes this, What is it, what is it, that induces one man to use false weights and another to set his house on fire after insuring it for more than double its value? Whilst three quarters of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud, what, what drives them? It's not actual need, is it? For they are not so badly off. They are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What was once done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. That is to say, for the love of which now gives them the highest feeling of power. God sees what we ponder in our bedrooms. He sees our raging discontent, our desire for more power, for more money, for more control. And let's be honest, all too often we're not satisfied, are we, with our lot, with our portion. And by not trusting God for our security, we feel as if we need to manufacture our own. And very often that self-security is paid for by others. Think of the school ground bully from your childhood. It's often very insecure, aren't they, the school ground bullies? And in order to feel better about themselves, in order to big themselves up, they had to push others down. It's, it's primitive, we see it in children, but we see it in us too, don't we? We might endlessly criticise a work rival in order to get an edge on promotion. We might scoff or laugh, uh, gossip about struggling parents in order to feel better about our own parenting performance. You see, the fruit that is produced by this root of covetousness and, and, and this root of insecurity, this fruit is very bitter indeed. And in verse 3, we see what we deserve. Read with me, verse 3. Therefore, the Lord says... I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day men will ridicule you. They'll taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. These verses describe when God sent Assyria to destroy Israel and Judah. I mentioned the British Museum last week. You can do a tour of it if you like. And um, at the, the room describing the fall of Lachish, which I mentioned last week, 
there's a, a particular picture which showed how the Assyrians used to take away prisoners of war. It, it showed a, a number of these Jewish prisoners lined up uh, very close together. And there's a piece of wood which is basically clamped around their neck, uniting them together. Almost like you would yoke animals together, yoking them to the plow. And that's the exact same Hebrew phrase here in verse 3, when we're told they cannot save themselves. They're being yoked together. They can't escape. Their coming destruction will be unavoidable and humiliating. So they're saying, verse 4, this is unjust. You can't do this. You can't do this, God. This is unjust. But of course, it's perfectly just. Just as these land barons plan disaster on others in verse 1, so the Lord plans disaster for them in verse 3. Just as they humbled others, so God will humble them. Just as they robbed others of their security and their inheritance, so the Lord will remove their security and their inheritance as he pushes them out of the promised land. And the scary thing is, Jesus uses the exact same language to describe the reality of hell. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And we cannot save ourselves. By reading these verses, we get an insight into the judgment that our covetous hearts deserve. If we were on the basis of merit, none of us deserve a place amongst God's people. None of us. Not me, not you. But there is a glimmer of hope here. Did you see that there in verse 5? It seems as if there will be a future assembly of the Lord. Judgment will come, exile will come, but somehow God's going to have a people left standing. But how can that be? How can that be if we can't save ourselves? Well, bear with me. Let's, let's carry on. We'll see later on. Our second point tonight. God plans disgrace for deceivers. Disgrace for deceivers. Look down at verse 6 with me. Seems as if there isn't much market for Micah's message. Look at verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace won't overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Every month or so, I, I gather with a, a number of ministers in the area, and we, we have like a, a preaching workshop. We give each other our, our sermons, and then we get a bit of feedback. I'd love to be on the floor of the wall at Micah's sermon feedback group. He's gathered there with all the other the preachers, the other sort of prophets in Jerusalem. And uh, they've listened to him give um, chapters 1 and half of verse 2, and, and they're, they're thinking of how to respond. Thanks, Micah. Thanks for this. There's a lot of, lot of positives we can, we can take away from, from this. But my main concern, Micah, is, that, is your emphasis on God's judgment. I mean, we can get away with that sort of stuff if we're aiming at the Assyrians, the pagans over there. But, but disgrace overtaking Judah, are you serious? Surely not. We are God's covenant people. And all this stuff about God's anger, God doesn't get angry, does he? I mean, it's a bit depressing, Micah. I mean, we might put off the newcomers. Why not? I don't know, why not instead preach about prosperity and, and blessing? That always goes down well. Why don't you tell people they're going to get lots of beer and lots of wine? People love that sort of stuff. Why not preach a positive, uplifting, alcohol-fueled message? 
Well, even today, we, we come across preachers who have done very well for themselves by doing just that, by sitting loose to God's word. They offer us theological systems which, which help justify our lavish, self-secure lifestyles. You might have heard of a guy called Rob Bell. I think he, um, he, he did the NUMA series a number of years ago. He now has a, a TV show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. He released a book called, God, uh, called Love Wins, and he, he tells us in this book, God does not punish sin. You might have heard of the likes of Joyce Mayer or Joel Osteen. Um, they've got their own TV channels, I'm sure. They've got their own uh, jets. They're very wealthy, and they, they promise us, we have enough faith, they promise us health and wealth too. These preachers will always be incredibly successful and very popular. But verse 11 tells us they're liars and deceivers. And they're self-deceived. In 1856, there was a German poet called Heinrich Hein. And he was on his deathbed. He was very close to dying. And a minister was with him in his, in his last hours trying to, um, to help him and discomfort him. And, and this minister wisely asked Heinrich, are, are you ready to meet God? Have you been forgiven? To which the poet famously scoffed, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. There's a modern ring to that, isn't there? Many people view it as God's job, God's obligation to forgive. We want a God of grace, but not a God of wrath. We want a God of mercy, but not a God of justice. We want a God of heaven, not a God of hell. And so we think we're entitled to pick and choose whatever characteristics of God we find most palatable to our 21st century conscience. But eventually what we do is we end up believing in a God entirely of our own invention. A God who, funnily enough, looks just like us. A God who shares our values and our outlooks and our political views. A God who will never challenge. A God who will never rebuke. A God who cannot save. However well-intentioned, it is not loving to distort the gospel. Because the theological roots of God's people have a direct impact on their fruits. And these false prophets, by not talking about God's justice, were helping those who unjustly preyed on the weakest in society. Because if God is a spineless wimp who doesn't do anything about sin, who doesn't ever get angry, then we can just sin with impunity and get away with it because it's in our power to do so look at verse 8 look at what these people are doing lately my people have risen up like an enemy you strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without care like men returning from battle you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes you take away my blessing from their children forever Micah's preaching group are not going to like this one bit. When Micah says God's enemy is not just the pagan Assyrians over there, but it's unjust Judah right here. Just as Joseph's brothers tore off his rich, multicolored robe and then threw him down a well and sold him into slavery, well, that's what these land barons are doing. They're repeating history. 
stripping God's children of their inheritance and watching them go off into slavery. But unlike these false prophets, God doesn't just stand by and idly watch. Thankfully, God is just. Look at verse 10. This is lovely. Get up, go away. For this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. Yes, God is just, and there is poetic justice here. These land barons, they're they're evicting the weak from their properties, and so what does God do? He evicts these guys from the promised land when Assyria comes. There will be no rest, no Sabbath for them, because in breaking God's holy law, they had defiled his land. Yes, God is just, and that is something to celebrate, not something to hide away or be embarrassed by. Now again, I've I've been promising you good news. And once again, by the looks on your faces, no one's looking that way. This is is still pretty bleak, isn't it? We're still seeing a lot of that dark black cloth. A lot of our sin, a lot about judgment. Where's the good news, Micah? Come on. Well, you'll be glad to hear verses 12 and 13. As he closes out this section, he gives us hope. He gives us the smallest little glimpse of the diamond. So here's our third point. There is a return for the remnant. Verse 12, read with me. I will surely gather you, all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture, like a place which will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. It seems like a bit of a random gear shift, doesn't it? A moment ago, it was all disaster for the defrauders. It was all disgrace for the deceivers. And like oh, First to fifth gear. Now a king is suddenly coming out of nowhere to rescue his people. And we're reading this and we're thinking, hang on, what's going on? Where did, where did, where did that come from? And that's the point. Given what we've seen of our roots, and given what we've seen of our fruits, God's salvation is totally undeserved and completely unexpected. Micah seems to be describing a time here after the exile, a time when God's people were scattered. But on this day, a shepherd king is going to come and gather that scattered people. And notice, all of them are going to be there. Like a good shepherd, he's going to ensure that not one of his sheep are missing. Whether it's dispossessed Jews from the north or southern kingdoms. Whether it's the poor, the weak, the dispossessed, the the oppressed, the victimized. Even Gentiles. Even sheep who are not of this pen. This king will gather into his city all who know him and all who love him. And there he will make them Secure forever. Thanks to Christmas cards, we think of shepherds rather sentimentally, don't we? We we like to think they're sort of soft, gentle people who like sort of cuddling sheep all the time, always got friendly faces on. The biblical image couldn't be further from that. The biblical picture tells us that shepherds were tough men. They were armed with two things. They had a crook or a staff, 
and then they had a rod. And the rod's basically the ancient equivalent of a baseball bat. And the purpose of the baseball bat was to protect the sheep by smashing up their predators. That's what the shepherd does. That's why King David had to sort of knock away lions and bears and things like that. Shepherds were tough men. And that's what we see happening here in verse 13. The king gathers his sheep by first breaking, smashing their enemies. Whatever confines them, whatever imprisons them, whoever enslaves God's people, this king will smash them with his baseball bat. That sounds great, doesn't it? Until we remember that the enemy isn't just Assyria over there, but the enemy is within. It's me. It's my sin. It's my idolatry. It's my covetous, insecure heart. And knowing all of that, Jesus Christ entered our world. And he is the good shepherd. And he laid down his life for his sheep. And at the cross there, God's perfect justice was satisfied as he was punished for my idolatry, for my covetous heart. As he faced our punishment and our exile. And he didn't just stay dead. No, the grave couldn't hold him. We read in John 10 how Jesus had the authority to lay down his life, but he had the authority to then raise it back up again. And through his resurrection, Jesus broke out. He freed all of those who are held captive by sin and Satan and death. All the enemies were destroyed. In the 1700s, there was a minister in the Scottish Highlands called Aeneas Sage. And he was rather frustrated because his congregation were were tiny in his little chapel. Despite all his kind invitations, no one wanted to hear um, the gospel. No one wanted to, to come to church. They're all outside at the pub or maybe they're, they're out playing games. But Enia Sage, he was not a small man like me. He was an enormous man. He was a man of extraordinary strength. And so what he did, he entered a local wrestling competition. True story. And somehow he managed to win. And in the final, he managed to throw down the champion wrestler, a guy called Big Rory. Now, wonderfully, Big Rory took his defeat rather well, and uh, he and Enia Sage got together, and they, they became very good friends. And together, they had a plan to get people back into church. The next Sunday, when the locals were out at the pub or out in the fields playing games, Sage and Rory went out on the hunt. Each of them grabbed a couple of men under their enormous arms and dragged them, kicking and screaming, into the chapel and then locked the door. And then he repeated this over and over and over and over until the church was full of people. And at which point, at which point, true story, they had a completely captive congregation, literally. At which point, Aeneas Sage managed to preach the gospel to them. And Big Rory stood at the back next to the door with a baseball bat, making sure no one could escape. Now then, (laughs) I am not suggesting this is the new outreach plan for St. John's. Um, I I don't think that's wise. But I love the story because there's such an inevitability about it. Aeneas Sage was going to have a congregation one way or another. And owing to his power, nothing was going to stop him. And so it is with Christ. Nothing 
can stand in the way of our shepherd king. Despite all the external threats that we might face as a church, despite all of our internal failings, despite our idolatrous and covetous hearts, Jesus will have a church one way or another. Jesus will have a remnant. So friends, you have no need to be insecure. We have no cause to try and manufacture our own security. Because Jesus has broken open a way for us into God's eternal city. He has gone before us. He is our security. He is our justice. He is our inheritance, our portion, our life. He is our all. Friends, let your roots sink down deep into that truth and you will bear the most marvellous fruit. Jesus is everything. He's everything. Let's pray. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his pure heart, for his obedience to your law, and that he went before us to the cross, dying for us, giving us his life, and then breaking out of that tomb that we might enjoy that eternal city. Thank you, Lord, for that security. Help us to make him our security this day and forevermore. Amen. We're going to sing of that security now as we're to prepare us to come to the Lord's table together.